My name is Hemish Alangaratne, and I'm the founder of RX Group and the host of Let's Talk Quality. Let's Talk Quality is a podcast aimed at quality assurance professionals in pharma and biotech. Join us to learn from some of the best QA leaders around the world and hear how they've developed their careers as they provide some practical insights into how they've got to the top of their field. Our mission is to shine a light on what good quality assurance really means for pharma and biotech. What impact does it really have on the patient? We want to explore some of the biggest challenges facing the sector and inspire the next generation of quality assurance leaders to continue to help bring safer and better quality therapies to patients. Welcome to season one. I hope you enjoy the show. Um, Laurie, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm uh, good. Good afternoon to you. Good morning yeah, to me. Good morning to you. Yeah. It's um, 9 a.m. where you are yep, in yep. Uh, sunny L.A. Yep. Um, not so sunny London um, over here. It's 5 p.m. dark and miserable. Um, but, <laughs> but Laurie, it's, um, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Um, we were just talking um, off air. You're very different to the typical guests that um, we normally have on this show. Um in the sense that you're not a quality assurance leader, um, a professional, but um, I suppose you, uh, your background, you were in the financial services um, sector for 20, 25 plus years. Um, and you were, I suppose, forced to give up your career in 2006, I believe. Um, Actually, two, 2008. 2008. So two, two years after my diagnosis. Two yeah. years, fine. So you were diagnosed with cancer. So you're focused now on patient advocacy, volunteering, um, fundraising for cancer research, specifically and particularly within the CAR-T immunotherapy world. Um, so um, it's it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show first, first and foremost. As I said, it's different to the usual guests that we have on. And I think it's one that I've been looking forward to for a while. Um, and it's a topic that I feel had to be discussed and should always be um, front of mind. Um, I suppose we'll briefly touch on the past, um, but we want to also primarily focus on the now and the future. Um, so with that in mind, I suppose, could you just explain to the listeners your, a bit about your story and, and what happened in your life, I suppose, that um, has led to you where you are and what you're doing right now. Correct. Great. So as you mentioned, I was diagnosed in 2006 at the age of 46 with an incurable type of non-Hodgkin lymphoma called follicular non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And at the time I was diagnosed, there was one approved treatment option. And as you said, I was running a company at the time. I was president of this financial software company based in Los Angeles. And I had to go out on leave to get treated. And there was one approved treatment at the time, which was called RCHOP, combination of monoclonal antibody and multiple chemo agents. And I um, initially, I had gotten a number of opinions, but because there was one approved treatment at the time, that's what I had to do. And I had one doctor I saw who told me that I had a 50% chance I would be alive in two years. And that was really scary because I was 46 years old and I had a little boy who was in kindergarten. And the thought of him not having a mom at the you know, when he was in the second grade really terrified me. And so I never went back to that doctor and I never was treated by him because I thought, if that's his pessimistic outlook for me, I don't want anything to do with it. So I underwent this chemo monoclonal antibody combination, and we thought after six cycles, four months of treatment, we thought I was in complete remission. I had a clean scan. And so I went back to work and began merrily traveling. I would wear a mask. Um, we were owned by, we got bought by a company that was based, and the parent company was in London. So I was doing a lot of travel and um at the time, my immune system was still weak because of the chemotherapy. So I started wearing a mask on the plane. So I was way ahead <laughs> of my time from the COVID masking era. But, um, yeah, but it accomplished what I wanted, which was to keep people away from me because they would look at me and they would go to the flight attendant and say, she must have something. Can you move us? And so I said to the flight attendant, yes, please move them all because it's what they have that I don't want. So Anyway, um, I resumed, I went right back to work, resumed my crazy schedule, running a company, running a household, being a mom to a young boy. And unfortunately, my first scan, my cancer was already back. 
So this is four months after I've been told I'm in complete remission, I get knocked in the gut. And that began a cycle of treatment, relapse, treatment, relapse in the, for the next 12 years. And over that 12-year time period, I had six lines of therapy. And unfortunately, over that 12-year time period between 2006 and 2018, nothing put me in a complete remission. But um, I did a total of six therapies over that time frame, two of which were clinical trials, one a phase two, one a phase one. Two, one, two, three of the treatments had just been approved. So essentially, you know, I was just past, you know, getting these drugs approved. And fortunately for me, they came out just in time so that I could kind of go on to the next therapy. You know, I, I have to clear out the chemo and whatnot from my system to start the new treatment. But really for 12 years, I was in treat continuous treatment. And, you know, and it was incredibly discouraging because like I was in a trial at one point and we thought the trial drug was working. This was a phase two of an HDAC inhibitor that was my second line of treatment. And the oncologist was all excited because we thought we were getting results. The tumors had stabilized and started to shrink a little. And then we have a scan. And when you're in a clinical trial, you get lots of scans. So I was getting quarterly scans. And I remember he came in with a very long face to tell me the treatment was failing. My tumors had grown beyond the the bounds of what was acceptable. And so I was being removed from the trial. And, you know, so I get this discouraging news. And, you know, so, so I did this for 12 years. And, you know, just incredibly challenging. Um, in 2011, I had gotten into a phase one trial of a PI3 kinase inhibitor. And this was, you know, obviously early phase one. There were only 20 patients in this, um, on this therapy I was getting. It was a pill. And I started that treatment um, when really the only option for me was an allogeneic stem cell transplant was the other alternative. Mm. And there's a lot of risks, obviously, with that. And this would be my fifth line of therapy. I'd already had two pretty wicked lines of chemotherapy. So, you know, the the prognosis wasn't great that I would even survive the first 90 days in the hospital. And then I did not have a sibling match. So I would have an unrelated donor match, which would increase the chances I would have graft-versus-host disease as a result of this that could impact very severely my quality of life. So when I heard about this phase one trial of this PI3 kinase inhibitor, I went in right away, got enrolled, and immediately my tumor started to shrink on this pill. And, you know, it was funny. I remember when I was getting into this trial and I first met with the lead investigator um, at UCLA who was running the investigation And I kind of just randomly got in touch with him and he reached out and I ended up getting the last spot in the trial. Right. So I was very fortunate to have emailed him. How many people were in the trial? 20. Okay. And, and I, he, when he called, when I emailed him, he called me that day and my caller ID said UCLA. And I thought, oh my goodness. And I answered the phone and, and this oncologist said with a very thick accent said to me, Miss Adamai, this is Sven DeVos at UCLA. I need you to come in today. I have a great trial I think would work really well given your treatment history and given how well patients are responded. But I already have 19 patients and I only have room for one more. And if you don't come in today, one of my associates is going to grab that slot. So, um, and it was interesting because we were both going to a charity event that night, which I didn't have any idea. And I said, you know, I, I, I'm going to have troubles getting in there today because I have to go to this event. And he said, are you going to the lymphoma research event? And I said, yes. He said, I'm going to be there. I'll bring the paperwork. We'll sit on the couch and you can sign the trial paperwork tonight. So, and when I met him, you know, when I first met him, he commented that he couldn't even see my ears because my tumors were so big. And, you know, so I had very active, very kind of became kind of more aggressive disease as I went through this process but within a week, my tumors had started to recede. And I ended up being on that drug for five and a half years. Wow. And it was a pill. I took it in the morning and I took it at night. After a year, the FDA approved it because the result, results were astonishing. Hmm. Um, but it never completely got rid of my disease. And it gave me pretty wicked side effects. I developed Crohn's disease 
while I was taking it. And a lot of these small molecule drugs have that effect because they kind of kick in autoimmune issues. I also developed psoriasis. You know, so it's never easy. Mm. Even though we say, oh, it's a pill, it's going to be easy. Not necessarily. Yeah. So I'm on that drug and I ended up being the long tail in the study. So when they published the the results of this clinical trial I was in, and after, you know, they publish kind of ongoing documents to look at how the patients were. And you know how they show the, the bar charts where they show the patients dropping off as a function of time? Yeah. I was the remaining bar five and a half years out. I was the longest patient in the trial. Really? Wow. And so what that did was it bought me time. Mm. It didn't get rid of my disease, but it bought me time. Yeah. So so that's from 2011 till the end of 2016. Okay. Now in 2012, yeah. I attended a Leukemia and Lymphoma Society um, event where they were showing this film about this young girl, Emily Whitehead. And you know, that was a story about her journey very early on with CAR-T. And I had never heard of CAR-T. And all of my drugs had been off the factory line. They were infusions. They were pills that were one size fits all. And hearing the story about CAR-T and Emily Whitehead and how this worked, I remember the lights going up in the theater. And I turned to my husband and son and said, if I can stay alive till this comes out in trial for follicular lymphoma, this may do it. This may be it. Because it struck me as being incredibly (laughs) innovative, smart. It would use my own cells. I mean, I was blown away. Yeah. So I was was in this trial of this PI3 kinase inhibitor, right, still in 2012. And I was seeing my oncologist that week. So I went in and I said, Dr. DeVos, why are you holding out on me? Why haven't you told me about CAR-T? And he said, Lori, he said, come with me and I want to show you something out the window. And he's the head of the lymphoma program at UCLA, but they, and they had bought a practice in Santa Monica and he had moved all the lymphoma people to Santa Monica. So I would see him in Santa Monica in the UCLA office there. So he points out the windows and he says, see those two buildings over there? He said, that's Kite Pharmaceutical and they are developing CAR-T. They're not ready yet for follicular because they were doing more aggressive indications, you know, diffuse large yep. B cell, um, yep. you know, AL, you know, different things yep. than because follicular has always been viewed as more of an indolent disease. Okay. Which in my case, it it really my disease never transformed. Yeah. But it acted pretty aggressive and it grew pretty fast, so I couldn't really just watch it. Yeah. Because it started to infect affect organs and whatnot. So so he said we just have to keep you going on the horse you're on right now. Your disease is stable. We figured out how to control the Crohn's, you know, that was being caught. They kept saying, oh, I want to take you off of this. I kept saying, no, it's the only thing that's keeping my disease capped. And I had to stop it at times because of this issue with the the GI stuff. And as soon as I stopped this drug, my tumors would just grow again. So then I go back on. So anyway... So he said, we just have to keep going. As soon as it comes out in trial, we're going to have it because this, 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 um, the, the head of Kite, Ari Beldegren, had been at UCLA. And so my oncologist had good access to that, you know, when it became ready. Yeah. So I kept going. Then at the end of 2016, my treatment failed me. Yeah. The, the, the uh, PI3 kinase inhibitor Um, That was also, interestingly enough, a Gilead drug because they had bought the company that made what was initially Cal 101 and they renamed it, they renamed it Idelalisib. And when they realized nobody could say that, they changed it to Zydelig. So when that, that finally stopped working. So December 31st, 2016, I stopped that. The next week I started my sixth line of therapy, which was a new kind of third generation monoclonal antibody. Uh, sort of third-generation rituxan called obinutuzumab or gaziva. And I did a nine-month course of that because CAR-T wasn't ready yet. And so did a nine-month course of that, finished late September 2017. Immediately, tumors start to pop up, you know, just like the story of my life. Hmm. And, you know, so we were just on on eggshells, hoping this would come out and in time, in trial. 
And in spring of 2018, I got a call from my oncologist. We are opening a trial at UCLA of CAR-T. There will be five patients and you will be patient number one. Wow. And it was a, it was a phase two study. And so then we ban- began, you know, the road to getting ready for CAR-T. And um, so, for example, I'd had sort of ongoing sinus infection issues because my uh, cancer was in my head and neck kind of in a big way. You know, as I mentioned, you couldn't even see my ears at points along my journey. So I had issues with my sinuses and my oncologist said, you cannot go into CAR-T with an active infection. So we've, you know, we've got to get this sinus and, you know, infection under control. And I went in to see my ENT and right away I told him that we need to get rid of my sinus infection so I can have this life-saving treatment called CAR-T. Right away, he called in the scheduler. He said, I need you to clear, I need you to reschedule my surgeries for tomorrow because I have a critical case right here that I need to operate on her tomorrow. And I encountered these incredible doctors along the way. So he did that surgery, which ended up being very much more involved than he thought it was going to be. And, but that set me up to be able to get my stem cells, or I'm sorry, my T cells harvested mid June. And, um, and you know, it's funny, my son was dying when I was diagnosed, my son was in kindergarten. Yeah. And when I was, my son, when I was getting ready to go to CAR-T was going to be graduating from high school. Wow. So he spent his entire elementary, middle high school with a mom sick with cancer and in treatment pretty much the entire time. So poor kid. And, you know, I remember having this conversation with him before I did CAR-T and, you know, he he was very emotional, obviously. And, um, you know, mom, what if this doesn't work? You know, we keep, you keep going, you know, this is your seventh line and, you know, we, you keep finding what you think is going to be good and it's going to work and then it just comes back. So, you know, and I said, but Gus, this works in a whole different way. This is going to use my cells. So I'm, I'm, I've always had hope Yeah. and I'd always push to find new things because I was so scared I was going to die and he wasn't going to have a mom. That was just a huge motivator. Yeah. And, and from his so, perspective, he's seen you grow up or he's grown up with you in this world and treatment after treatment, sixth line of therapy. What was, what, you know, what gave him hope that this would, this would fix it? Um, exactly. Exactly. And it was, it was really interesting because I was doing my CAR T at UCLA. And as soon as he turned 18, so in the spring, he had researched um, EMT certification programs. And he had decided to go to a college in DC that had a student EMT crew. So when I was at UCLA getting my CAR-T, he went to the UCLA paramedic school and got his EMT certification and started working in this program in college in Washington, DC as an EMT and worked all through college, you know, volunteering, um, you know, 20, 20, 25 hours a week while maintaining a class schedule. So I think he became kind of a unique kid having experienced, you know, all this time of treatments and side effects. And, you know, when he was little, he gave me lots of love and he'd climb into bed with me and, you know, all of that. But then, you know, when he got his driver's license, he could go get me stuff I needed. And, you know, so he played a big role in, in my, you know, survivorship as did my, of course, my husband. So Anyway, so that, so that, so now we're into 2018. And, um, so I got CAR-T and I got my cells back July 16th, 2018. That was my CAR-T birthday. Complete non-event getting your CAR-T cells back. Although they do taste really strange when you get them infused. It's like a... Is it corn something it tastes like? Creamed Creamed corn. And I don't know if you grew up with creamed corn, but I was never a creamed corn fan. I was always a movie popcorn fan. And I said, why can't you make it It taste and smell like that? (laughs) So so when they they roll in your CAR T-cells in this big vat with dry ice, they pull out this little bag of your cells you know, when they harvested my T-cells, they took out about a million T-cells. Yeah. And um, 
and it was red. So you just assume you're going to get a product back that's red. Yeah. But when they pull it out of this vat, it looks like kind of like, I describe it as pond scum. <laughs> you know, it's kind of yellowish and you're going to put that in me. And yeah. yep, these are your CAR T cells. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> astonishing. <laughs> yeah. And then and then the tech brings lollipops so you don't have to taste the cream corn. Okay. And, she, and the tech said to me, do you like cream corn? Because if so, you don't need the lollipops. And I said, no, 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 I never liked it. Give me the lollipops. So anyway... And then, and then you wait and you wait to see what happens. And I went into CAR T with my oncologist estimated I had eight pounds of tumors when I went in. Eight pounds. And that was even after debulking with chemotherapy, which I think by, by then my disease was so heavily treated. Yeah. It just said, Oh, more chemo, whatever. And just merrily went on growing. Yeah. But when I went in, I had, a, um, had developed a kind of kidney blockage on my right side. So my kidney enzymes were getting kind of funky looking. And so, you know, I was, cause my tumors were so huge. Now, nowadays, if I had had that kind of tumor burden, they would not let me do CAR T because oftentimes that big tumor burden can lead to significant yeah. side effects, yeah. you know, which, which, you know, is what happened to me. And I was a tri in a trial. I was a guinea pig. They didn't know what they know now, five and a half years later, about how to manage side effects. You know, now I'm even supporting patients that are doing it outpatient. And it's really amazing because now they know how to manage CRS, you know, cytokine release, and they know how to manage the ICANN's neurotoxicity, you know. And when I did it, they didn't. So, you know, but bottom line, day 30, I get rolled into the PET CT at UCLA and my oncologist comes in and says to me, you're in complete remission one month later. Wow. And shows me this scan. I, of course, don't believe him because I haven't had a clean scan for 12 years. And so I just kind of crumple up the report and threw it across the room like, are you making this up? But as, as time went on, I, I believed. And I posted those images on LinkedIn and, and people were just astonished. Because if you look at eight pounds of tumor, basically everywhere, even in my bone marrow. And then you look and the, the images have dates on them. So you can see it was one week before CAR-T and one month after. And the only thing lighting up one month after is normal organ function. So astonishing result. And, and then I had, you know, scans every 30, every, I'm sorry, every um, quarterly for a while, then every six months. Now I'm on a one-year scan. And now this July will be six years clean. Wow. And my oncologist believes, even though follicular non-Hodgkin lymphoma is considered incurable, my oncologist believes I'm cured and that CAR-T will cure a good percentage of follicular non-Hodgkin patients. So I had an astonishing result. And when I, when I came out of the hospital, I thought, what am I going to do with my life? You know, I'd been running a software company, very successful. Um, we made a lot of money for our clients, big institutional bond managers. And, you know, I did fine as well, but it didn't have, and I had a lot of stress, you know, running a division of a much bigger company and obviously politics and bureaucracy and all this stuff. Yeah. But um, I had this debate, you know, I fought for 12 years and came out of this and with the recognition about what how much of a game changer this type of therapy could and should be for patients. And, you know, I had it as seventh line. It got approved now as a third line. So you have to have, have two relapses to get it. But I, I also recognize how difficult the cancer journey is for patients and how alone you are. Because unless you've had cancer, you really don't, nobody expects they're going to get cancer. And when it happens, you suddenly have to figure out all these different, you know, how to navigate your work. How is your boss going to take this news? How are you going to find doctors? Is your insurance going to cover treatments? How are you going to tell your kids? How are you going to tell your parents? How, you know, there's so many challenges that come with this that I realized I needed to change my life and become a patient volunteer and try to help other patients on the road behind me. Because I also recognized as a patient that I had met some people on the road ahead of me during my journey that gave me so much hope. Because I would meet these patients who were 
had survived a year or two longer than I had. And I thought, if they can do it, so can I. And, you know, as opposed to talking to doctors and nurses who are great and play their roles very effectively, but if they've never been through a cancer journey themselves, they mm. really don't understand all the issues a patient is grappling with. Yeah. And then you have side effects and how to treat the side effects and more side effects. And, you know, so you basically have to medicate your side effects, which causes more side effects. So at that point, I kind of decide, I decided, I didn't kind of decide, I decided that I would become a volunteer patient advocate. And so I volunteer for three different nonprofits who refer patients to me that I try to help, either patients who are looking to do CAR-T or patients who've just been diagnosed and are trying to figure out how to get in to see doctors who specialize in their, in their type of disease. So I spend a lot of probably at least 20 hours a week speaking to patients and helping them. I also am a volunteer patient advocacy, um, a, a patient advocacy volunteer. And so I try to help impact legislative change in Washington, D.C., and also Sacramento, California, to try to influence the direction of legislation to make cancer patients have an easier go of it. And so I've been doing that now since 2019. And we've had some big wins. We've had yeah. a lot of frustrations, but we've had some really big wins. And having gone through these issues myself over the years of access and insurance and, you know, all the challenges with the financial side of things, you know, it's, it's been re very rewarding for me yeah. to work in that area. Let's talk a bit about patient access. Um, you, you've touched on it there. And I mean, in, in certain blood cancers, like a B cell lymphoma, for example, I think it's something like only two in 10 people that are eligible for the treatment actually receive the therapy. Um, and yet over, you know, around 45, 50%, I believe, um, of patients are alive within five, you know, five years after receiving the, the, the therapy. Um, why, I suppose, why is this and, and what can the industry do to help improve access to um, eligible patients? I was very lucky that I lived in Los Angeles. And my first five lines of treatment, I actually went to four different cancer centers in Los Angeles. And because I would be being treated at one place and my cancer would come back and the oncologist at that, say, um, treatment center one would say, well, we don't have anything else for yeah. you. So I would have to go find another place and find out about trials. So I was really my own advocate to do that, but I lived in Los Angeles. So geographically very desirable, you know, like the big cities, you know, where the NCI designated hospitals are, a patient is going to have far better access to specialists in their disease to treatment yeah. options, to trials, because that NCI hospitals is where the bulk of trials get run out of because they have big patient populations, so they can enroll more patients into a clinical trial. But if you look into, say, I was going to say the flyover zone in the United States, but it's not even really that. I mean, if you look on the east side of LA, for example, you know, yeah. if you live on the east side of LA, it could take you two hours to get to the west side of LA, and yeah. you've got an HMO, and, you know, you're probably going to a community oncologist. And if you're going to a community oncologist, very likely you're being treated by a general oncologist. Because mm -hmm. many of them don't even have a blood cancer specialist, you know, never mind having a lymphoma specialist or a leukemia specialist. Leukemia specialist. And so in those environments, you know, CAR-T has not traditionally been administered. Because it's been historically in these large academic research centers that have big popu patient populations. And, yeah. you know, the vast majority of Americans doesn't have the ability to relocate for no. a month to get this treatment. Now, hopefully the month is getting shortened as treatment side effects are better understood and better managed. And the fact that I'm now talking to patients who are doing CAR-T outpatient is astonishing. 
you know, they, they get their, they get their cells. They go back to an Airbnb or a facility on campus at the, at the hospital where they'll stay and they go in daily for blood checks. Then maybe day five, they get some fevers. So they might get checked in the hospital for a couple of days. And then they're released again. And then maybe they have a day of neurotoxicity and they might be hospitalized for a day again. So that kind of outpatient access to this treatment can be game changing for the patient because they can have a spouse with them. They can have a kitchen. The, they don't have to be in a hospital setting, which is, is very disruptive to sleep habits and whatnot. But also too, the value of being treated outpatient is the cost gets significantly reduced. Because, you know, a stay in the ICU can run a thirty, forty thousand dollars a night. And, you know, if you string together enough nights of that, you know, that adds up to significant yeah. cost. And so, you know, so that has kind of changed that. But there's still this problem of the bulk of Americans are going to be treated in these community oncology practices that that don't understand these new therapies. Because how could you possibly, if you're supporting patients with solid tumors, liquid tumors like blood cancers, how can you possibly stay up to date on all the research that's happening and all the options? And I've also been told by patients that they feel their oncologist doesn't refer them out, doesn't want to refer them out because they don't want to lose that patient. I spoke to a woman in Florida who was considering CAR-T. This was a couple of years ago. And her community oncologist said, oh, my God, you don't want to do CAR-T. That'll kill you. You should stay with me and we'll find something else to do. Now, this woman that I spoke to was in touch with LLS, and that's how she got a hold of me and had heard about CAR-T from LLS, which is why she asked her doctor about it. And he was very, very negative and really scared her. Well, LLS connected with me with her. And so I spoke to her and I said, you know, you need to go to Moffitt. You need to go to Moffitt in Florida and get a consult about CAR-T because I'm guessing your community oncologist doesn't know enough about it. If he's saying it's going to kill you, you know, two, two years ago was so much better than six years ago with, yeah. as far as side effects. So she went to Moffitt, she got CAR-T at Moffitt, and she's now been clean for a few, couple of years. And she said, I'll never go back to that person again. You know, now she had the luxury to go you know, switch locations and, and go to Moffitt, which most people don't. So there is this big um, issue with access and awareness. And, you know, the press, as much as you've got to love the press, the focus is always on the negative story, right, in the press. So, you know, the early patients that, that did have severe issues with CAR-T um, and, you know, that got all the oxygen just like the recent black box warning has gotten all this oxygen, oxygen. Yep. And so, you know, I think, and, and, and there's a lot of groups on Facebook and, you know, patient groups for CAR-T. And if you go on there, there's a lot of really, un, there are a lot of educated people yeah. on there, but there's a lot of uneducated people that are sharing a lot of really yeah. bogus information. Yeah. And, you know, and so it's really hard to get the word out about this. And the statistics, if you look at CAR-T results versus a standard line of chemotherapy, stem cell transplant, the efficacy rates are are much better. And the toxicity is much lower. You know, when you do cancer, you know, when you do traditional kind of brute force chemotherapy and then stem cell transplant, you know, there are a lot more side effects you know, with that and a lot of long-term side effects. Now I'm still living with issues from my 12 years of treatment. So I had yeah. a lot of steroids during my 12 years of treatment. So I've got weak bones and as a result, and, you know, so I've, I'm trying to manage that and that has ramifications in my life. You know, it's a shame I couldn't get CAR-T until 12 years and six prior lines of therapy. Nowadays, patients can get it at the third line um, for some indications, at second line for some, for five indicate you know for five lines another diagnosis like multiple myeloma, and so you know bringing it further up in the journey and everybody says wow oh it's so expensive, well if you look at all the cost for my twelve lines of treatment, I mean 
the cost for car T in comparison. And if I could get, could have gotten car T as first line, gotten cured, never had to treat again. I mean, yeah. 12 lines, multi millions of dollars. That PI3 kinase inhibitor that I was on for five and a half years, I was lucky because I was a phase one, it was a phase one study. So I got it for free for the entire time I stayed on it. But that drug ended up costing, I think, $180,000 a year. Right. So, so multiply, you know, do the math. You know, yeah. that's almost a million dollars right there. So it's relative, but I think you look at this stuff in a vacuum and yeah, you know, and the more they can speed up time to production, you know, for production to get the cells back sooner to the patient, the more it can be done outpatient, the more competition there are, there is typically, the more competition there is, prices come down. You know, we're yeah. still early days here. But, you know, all these arguments, I just really want to refute them because just look at my own experience. Yeah. Well, you went, you're talking about that. Obviously, the FDA published back end of last year the um, the safety advisory on the risk of um, T-cell mal- malignancies for those patients receiving CAR-T cell therapy for certain blood cancers. Um, and like you say, you look at the stats, I think over nearly 30,000, I think 27, 28,000 people um, or patients have actually received the commercial, commercially available CAR-T. Um, and I think the rate of T-cell malignancies is, is 22 patients? 20, 20 oh, if, if patients. that. Yeah, I don't, I don't it, even it, think it was that high. It's lower than traditional, you know, it's lower than some other traditional treatments. So I suppose when you, when you, when you heard that and then when you see um, things in the press and, you know, bogus claims or stories on, on, um, on the internet, what, what, like how does that make you feel? And what's your response to that? It's infuriating to me. Um, Although it has been pointed out to me that Botox has a black box warning. And does that stop anyone from from getting rid of the wrinkles in their face? No. The the issue I have is it's presented in such a vacuum that, and and it's all the patients need and it's all their doctors need to say, see, this is why I'm not going to do this because I'm going to get a secondary cancer. But what the FDA needs to do in my, you know, instead of presenting this as its own scary fact, they need to present it in comparison with all these other therapies. So, for example, a stem cell transplant. Okay, let's say you do an allogeneic stem cell transplant. You are going to get chemoed to the point where your own immune system is completely killed. Then you're going to get an infusion of a donor's stem cells that are going to graft in your system and take over. You know, if you're, if you were a AB positive blood, if that was your positive, your blood was AB positive and you got infused with O stem cells, you will now be O blood type. Hmm. And, and also with that, you can get what's called graft-versus-host disease where your new immune system begins to reject your organs. That kills a lot of people. Forget secondary cancers. If you do allogeneic stem cell transplant, you have to go on immune suppressors. Immune suppressors, so that you don't have this rejection problem, can cause secondary cancers. And, you know, clearly. so, So where is the comparison? And, you know, if you're being told, oh, you should do a stem cell transplant rather than CAR-T, I mean, those patients should be aware there's far greater risk. Also, too, one in three patients probably die in the hospital during that allogeneic stem cell transplant. I believe that's the statistic. You're in the hospital for 90 days, you have no immune system, and you get an opportunistic infection, like pneumonia. I just lost a, a friend who got a stem cell transplant and had got pneumonia and died in the hospital it's like day 45 so yeah. so where you know presenting it in a vacuum is really not helpful like that because all it does is 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 frighten patients and their doctors and i also wish they would speak to the patients who've gotten car t because if i hadn't gotten car t i would have been dead in a month i have no yeah. doubt no doubt at all my disease was huge 
if I hadn't gotten CAR T when I did, I would have been gone. And if I had done allogeneic stem cell transplant, there's no way I would have gotten through that with six prior lines of therapy and, and no familial match. So, so it makes me angry. Um, and, you know, it just, I mean, I know why they have to do it. It's a liability issue. They have to, ex, you know, explain. But then where is the explanation on these treatments the FDA approved 30 years ago that, you know, have been in use in some cases, like transplants since the mid seventies, you know, where's the stats on that? And, and that's what's frustrating to me. And, you know, the last thing we need is fear around this, where this can be curative. This is a one and done, you know, as far as I can tell, I mean, at my own experience, the only side effects I have and the only health challenges that I have are stemming from the 12 years prior mm. to my CAR T. You know, when I had these brutal chemotherapies, I had radioimmunotherapy. Oh, yeah, talk about radiation. How many people get secondary cancers because of radiation? I mean, that's it. I mean, that's why it just, it, it really makes me, I know yeah. I shouldn't be angry because that's not helpful for myself, but it's just very frustrating. Yeah, I, mean, I, I can imagine. Uh, well, I can't, I can't imagine, but yeah, it's... Um... And may you never be able to imagine. Yeah, may you well... never have to deal with this. Yeah, I mean it's. Um, I mean the the other the other thing is it's just it's it, it leave you, you mentioned that there's the disconnect I suppose between um, patients, the patient population, and the wider industry, the biotech industry, um, and a lot of that might be um, due to well, I don't, I don't uh, you know due to. Um, the, the, the scaremongering or the the, the certain um, press that comes out um, but what, what do you what needs to be done like what what how can you bridge the gap between well, you know patients right it's kind of interesting because the last three plus years you know four years we've all been um, you know over three years we've all been getting a lot of information about covid and facing a pandemic. And that's kind of sucked the oxygen out of the room. And during COVID, I think the advancements that were made in CAR-T were significant in terms of how to manage side effects. And it's funny because COVID can cause CRS as well. Patients yeah. can, you know, can get high fevers, you know, low uh, blood pressure, high heart rate. They can also hallucinate. They can get neurotoxicity issues, very similar to what can happen to patients with CAR-T. And I think the, the industry was able to use some of that experience with CAR-T, patients with CAR-T, um, with CRS and neurotoxicity, to help treat these severe COVID patients. But it also, you know, sucked the room, sucked the air out of the room as far as the press was concerned. And this is the focus of the press. And I feel that the biotech industry and, you know, these cell manufacturing firms really need to unify around a public relations campaign and bringing patients to the fore. You know, Emily Whitehead's story came out, got a lot of good press, um, but, but that's kind of it, right? You don't know other patients. You don't know. I mean, I've been trying to do my own PR to raise, because when I came out of it, I said, I got to raise awareness of this thing. I had 12 years of horrible treatments that didn't work and I get this treatment in 30 days, I'm in complete remission. And more importantly, almost six years later, I'm yeah. in complete remission. So I've been doing my own thing, trying to raise awareness. But the industry has not. There's been very little about CAR-T and about, you know, sharing the reality of CAR-T today. You know, everybody focuses on the early days in Emily's story. She had a hard time, you know, she had a bad time. You know, she had severe CRS. She had to be in a coma for the neurotoxicity. And, you know, that's the focus. And she, and, and yes, she's alive and she's now in college, which is phenomenal because she was a young girl when she was diagnosed. She's now a freshman in her freshman year of college. And, yeah. you know, and I know Tom, her, her dad and mom and, you know, really have done a lot to raise awareness, but, but that's just a couple individuals. And where's the message from the industry? This, this has been game changing. And, you know, now 27,000, 30,000 patients have gotten this, you know, and of course it hasn't worked for everybody, which means biotech has to keep improving it, finding new targets, 
finding new mechanisms of action, figuring out how to shorten the time to produce the cells, you know, all these things. But Mm. there's like a void, you know, in my own experience. I mean, anybody who's diagnosed with lymphoma should, should hear this, that, you know what, this is not necessarily any longer a death sentence. You know, and for me going through 12 years of constantly being faced with, oh gosh, that treatment didn't work. What am I going to do next? And having to advocate for myself. Fortunately, I was able to advocate for myself, but most people are not. And, you know, so that's, I, I would throw it out to the biotech. And I said this when I spoke in Miami, you know, a few weeks ago, that, you know, there's just been a dearth and everybody's competing with all the firms are competing. I get it. But, you know, there needs to be like a public service announcement, you know, with some facts here, you know, and how patients, what percent of patients are doing this outpatient now? I know it's still small. What percent of patients now are getting mild CRS and ICANS? I can tell you, I have not talked to a single patient in the last three years that has had severe CRS or neurotoxicity. It's been mild because they use tozolizumab, they use steroids, they use anti-seizure medications prophylactically, they're much better at how they do this. And and hats off to the medical community and everybody, you know, figuring out how to manage these side effects. But then let's tell the story. Yeah, well said. Uh, and um, like just on, on the CAR-T, just to, I suppose, round off the, the discussion about CAR-T cell therapy specifically, where do you, where do you see it? going um on a on a wider scale and what are you excited about well i'm really excited for for you know right now i talk to patients getting heart tea and you know a lot of those patients are diffuse large b cell clients or patients rather not clients um yeah. and you know the response rates for diffuse large b cell are not as good as they are for follicular which is what i happen to have mm-hmm. and so I see patients who are relapsing at some point and then having to find other things. And, you know, a lot of these patients had mild response, mild side effects in CAR-T. So potentially they could do it again, but they need new targets. They need to figure out new targets to make it more effective. And I, I you know, I, I know there's a lot of that going on and, you know, there's still um, so much work going on and so much money going into it. But for the patients who've relapsed, they're desperate. You know, they're trying to find other things. Um, I believe this therapy should, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but just on the face of it, it seems like the the potential could be harnessed for solid tumors, for autoimmune. You know, there was a very small study of lupus patients and all the patients responded. You know, yeah. we're talking about a handful of patients, but still representative to what the options are for treatment, that's a very high response rate. Yeah. You know the the science has got to figure out how to how to how to get the the um, the longevity of CAR T cells with solid tumors. They need to figure out how to make them live longer so they can work for solid tumors. Um, you know, like multiple myeloma patients, it's now approved that multiple myeloma patients can get CAR T generally as fourth or fifth line. They have to have undergone a stem cell transplant before, which to me is. I don't know. And that's, that's a subject for another conversation, but, um, but it's very effective for multiple myeloma, but it doesn't appear to be durable. So how do you get the CAR T cells to live longer? Science needs to keep going. We still have a lot of work to do, but I'm really excited about the potential for these other disease cohorts, you know, just based on my own experience. And, you know, the treatments of old are, you know, we know they're so damaging to the patient. And so, you know, any kind of a smart therapy using the patient's cells or, you know, using off-the-shelf patient cells to get the turnaround time quicker for some of these more aggressive diseases is uh, is what really excites me, you know, is the potential for this. You know, my dad died of pancreatic cancer when he was 74. And, you know, it was brutal chemo, radiation, chemo, radiation, and, you know, there still isn't the progress for pancreatic cancer, you know, and glioblastoma is another one. You know, how incredible would it be? And when I talk to patients, I talk to patients with all sorts of diagnoses because I have a very big network. So, and I worked for a very large company. So uh, occasionally I'll hear from people I knew when I was working, I'll say, you know, my next door neighbor's 
cousin just got diagnosed with um, glioblastoma. Can you talk to him? And, and so I do. So I, I, I see a lot of diagnoses and some of these diagnoses and we're not, we've made very little progress. And, you know, that's where, to me, there's huge potential in these therapies. If we can figure out how to get them to work through these kinds of diseases, it could truly be life-changing for patients. And, you know, having lost my dad to one of these diseases, I'm really, you know, I mean, obviously my own experience was with blood cancer and the researchers will say, well, blood cancers are easy to target, you know, it's easy to find. That's like the low hanging fruit, you know, finding targets for that, you know, it's different, but I still have faith in, in research and, you know, in biotech, I still have faith. And, you know, there's so many incredible people in this field who are really trying to make a difference. You know, everybody criticizes pharma as, you know, oh, it's all the they just want to make the money and they know how to can- cure cancer and they won't do it. And, but I've seen it and I've lived it. And I know that's not true. And yes, there are pharmaceutical companies. The guy that went to jail for, you know, 5,000% increase and, in, you know, whatever disease, you know, that was cheap before. And so there are yeah. examples, of course, but, but I choose to believe based on my own experience that there's a lot of incredible people that are really trying to make a difference to help humanity. Great. Um, you've obviously been through um, this this whole journey, um, and thank thank God that it's ended um, and it's uh, ended well for you. Um, I, su- I I'd imagine that leaves you in a position where you want to make the most of life now and um, live life to the full. Um, so I'd love to hear about what 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 you do and what you want to do like what's on the bucket list now what's um what are the things that you're looking forward to the most um both in the work that you're doing but also outside of work right so um one of my big challenges right now i mentioned 12 years of therapy so on the 12 years of therapy that i had you know prior to car t i had a lot of steroids and so that led to a broken hip a year ago. I fell on a hike, but I have been doing a lot. I've been really trying to get strong physically as I came yeah. out of this. And then I had a setback, you know, and, uh, and I was supposed to go to the Everest Base Camp in 2020 to track to really? them. I was supposed to go to Mount Everest Base Camp in <laughs> April of 2020 to raise money for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Two of my UCLA oncologists were going, um, my trial go. coordinator from my CAR-T trial, she was going and we were bringing a documentary filmmaker. So I'd been training really hard for that. And then COVID shut the world down. And I got shingles, which was a bummer because my immune system after all those years is a little challenged still. So I was getting back on my feet and I was supposed to go to Ecuador in June of 2024 to do five volcanoes, um, including Cotopaxi. And, you know, going to carry on with my fundraiser. And then my broken hip has really set me back. So I may, they repaired my hip, but I may have to have a hip replacement. So right now, that's been an incredible source of frustration because I'm going back through the cogs of the medical, trying to get, figure out what's going on, multiple, you know, and it's just daunting. And, you know, it was daunting with cancer and it's daunting with this. And I'm a pretty educated pretty capable advocate for myself, but oh man, it's frustrating. So I need to get myself well so I can resume my hiking and swimming because that's become a big part of it. You know, the stronger I am, the more likely I am to to make it to my nineties, you know? So that's, so that's like a big goal is to get back on my wellness journey. Um, In the absence of that, I do, I really love talking to patients, you know, and people say, why are you doing this? Why don't you just like go do something else? But it's so rewarding for me because I now I know how helpful as a patient it was for me to talk to another patient on the road ahead of me. So I really enjoy doing that. And I really feel like I can make a difference and, and help patients. And I'm not a doctor, so I can't give medical advice. I can relate my own journey and the frustrations. And, you know, patients talk now about how frustrating it is with with getting medical care, you know, and I remind them, well, post-COVID, there's a shortage of medical personnel. And this has really impacted the patient experience. There's no doubt. So so I love doing that. I love to cook. I love to travel. I'm not able to do so much traveling right now. Um, I love to visit 
biotech companies and speak to their employees. That is so rewarding for me because I find when I talk to these people, they've never heard from a patient before. Mm. And again, it's really a motivator for staff and for people working in this field to actually hear what happened to me and how this saved my life. So I love doing that. I love, I mean, I love thanking the people that are working in biotech. I had the opportunity to visit the CAR-T company that made my cells and actually to meet people that worked there when my cells were manufactured. And I got to thank these people. They saved my life. And, you know, most of them commented they'd never heard from a patient. So there's this disconnect between the people that are doing these life-saving therapies and between the patients that are getting them. And there's really no interaction. And a lot of it is liability. A lot of it is HIPAA. You know, in the United States, you know, privacy regulations. But like I say, hey, I'm willing to expose my my person. I've become public because I think it's just that important to raise the awareness and to thank the people that are working in the lines, that are making these therapies, that are producing the cells. But just as important, the ones that are doing the QC to make sure the cells are good and viable and can be returned to the patient on time. Because yeah. like me, I couldn't have waited another month. I would have been gone if if that CAR-T manufacturer had mucked up my cells. I yeah. was done, you know? Yeah. And they would have tried some desperation Hail Mary chemo or something on me. But um, so I think it's just really important. And I, and I love doing it. So, yeah. um, you know, I, my son lives in Washington, D.C. now. So he left Los Angeles you know, he was considering going to college in, in on the West Coast, or he really loved Washington, D.C. from when we took him there as a very young boy. He always loved Washington, D.C. And I really kind of wanted to encourage him to, because he lived so much of his life dealing with my issues. And yeah. I felt it would be really good for him, you know, to get out of here and to start fresh. And, and he loved it so much. And I'm from the East Coast originally, so of course I love the East Coast. But, um, he loved it so much that after he graduated, he broke the news to us he wanted to stay. But right. I spend a lot of time in D.C., which is great because I can see him. You know, I can call in my legislators, stuff like that. So, um, you know, doing of my husband is still working. He still has a business. So so but I, I love traveling even by myself. So. Amazing. I'm um, I'm jealous of all the trips that you've you've got planned, um, um, <laughs> and I and um, I hope that you your hip um, recovers. Uh, me too, me too. Uh, you know, um, I just participated via. I met I met a uh, I I was um, met some people from a, a, a cell therapy a business that's involved in cell therapy when I was in Florida for the conference a few weeks ago. And they're based in London and they were just having their five-year anniversary and they wanted me to come speak. And cool. how I wish I could have gone in person, but I did it over Zoom, you know, over this kind of platform, which is not the same. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, hopefully I'll get out there and see them. Um, yeah. Because like I say, it is just so important for the people that are working so hard. And this is a stressful field and yeah. a competitive field. And But to hear outcomes of people like me is so important and for me to be able to say thank you for everybody working in this field because if it weren't for you i'd be dead truly well i, I mean i as you know i speak to qa qac Q, qa stroke qc um, professionals on this podcast i speak to them day in day out uh, because i i recruit into um that market and I'd imagine there is no greater feeling of a sense of purpose and motivation than um, hearing from or actually seeing an individual patient that they have directly had an impact in treating. Um, they've developed your your therapy, um, right? So, and they they only they only know the patients as a number. You know, they yeah. don't know. And but when I visited this company, I was able to see where my cells entered the facility when they were just my T cells, my yeah. stupid T cells that weren't working hard enough, and then where they exited the facility, and they were those CAR T cells. There's, I mean, it was such an emotional day, and you know, I and I spoke to the employees and I thanked them for babysitting my cells so carefully. And afterwards, a bunch of employees came up and said. We just started crying when you said babysit because we call them our babies when we're working on the cells. 
and very meaningful. Well, Laurie, I just want to say thank you so much for um, for, for coming on the show and then sharing your, your journey and sharing all the amazing work that you're doing. It's incredibly inspiring and um, very grateful to have the opportunity. It was, it was great to meet in person in Miami yes. Um, yes, in last was. month. Um, and, um, you know, and if I'm, you I'm get, sure and if you if you get out to LA, you got to look me up. Oh, of course, yeah, I'll be, I'll be, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll love to. I'm hoping to get out there for a trip at some point this year or next year. But um, same to you, if you when you when you're in London, um, you know where to find me. So, um, but no, Laurie, it's been really good. Um, I think a lot of people, like I said, the people that I talk to are developing and uh, manufacturing these therapies. So to hear from a someone who's been through your journey and, and your story. Um, I think offers a huge should offer a huge amount of purpose and motivation to to everyone listening. So um, thank you so much. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for having me here to share my story. And I was thinking when you when you advertise your this podcast, you might want to put my before and up and my before and after PET scan images on. You've got it. So because yeah, um, that that's just the most astonishing. So thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share and, and your audience, I know are people I want to thank anyway. So thank you to everyone out there in the industry who's, who's allowing things like my story to happen. No, absolutely pleasure. Well, we'll, 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 um, we'll keep in touch and um, maybe we'll do another episode in, in a year's time to, to hear about all the great work that you've been doing and how, how is it progressing. Sounds good. All right. Take care and we'll see you soon. Thanks, Laurie. Uh-huh. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's show. I hope that you got value from it, whether you're starting your career in quality or if you're at the top of your field. Today's episode was brought to you by RX Group. I'm the founder of RX Group. We are a pharma and biotech recruitment organization focusing purely on quality assurance. We recruit consultants and senior level permanent quality professionals into the pharma and biotech industry. If we can support you, whether that be in a hiring capacity or if you yourself are looking for work, please get in touch with me on LinkedIn, visit our LinkedIn page where you can subscribe to the podcast and visit our website www.rx-group.io to find out more about us. See you soon.